Welcome to the Be Good Podcast, where we explore the application of behavioral economics for good in order to nudge better business and better lives. Hi, and welcome to this episode of Be Good, brought to you by BVNH Consulting, a global consultancy specializing in the application of behavioral science for successful behavioral change. Every month, we get to speak with a leader in the field of behavioral science, psychology and neuroscience in order to get to know more about them, their work and its application to emerging issues. My name is Eric Singler, founder and CEO of BVNH Consulting, and with me is my colleague Suzanne Kirkandol, CEO of BVNH Consulting, North America. Hi Suzanne for a new episode. Hi, Eric. I'm very happy to be joining you for today's episode and to be introducing our guest, Professor Vanessa Patrick. Vanessa is the Associate Dean for Research, the Bauer Professor of Marketing, and the lead faculty of the Executive Women in Leadership Program at the Bauer College of Business at the University of Houston. Professor Patrick is a regular speaker at both academic and practitioner conferences. Her research has appeared in the Journal of Consumer Research, Journal of Marketing Research, Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, Journal of Consumer Psychology, Journal of Retailing, Journal of the Academy of Marketing Science, and many more academic journals. Before her academic career, Vanessa Patrick worked in advertising and brand consultancy for multinational agencies like Ogilvy and J. Walter Thompson. She's also worked as a consultant to companies like the Coca-Cola Company, CNN, and Hallmark. And very excitingly, Vanessa has just published her first book, The Power of Saying No, the new science of how to say no that puts you in charge of your life. Vanessa, welcome to our Be Good podcast. Thank you so much, Eric and Suzanne. I'm so excited to be here. So let's start, Vanessa, and we would like first to know more about yourself. So thank you so much again for being with us today. Uh, before talking about your amazing uh, book that we have loved with Suzanne, we would like to know a little more about yourself, as I mentioned, and your career. I think you received your PhD in business from the University of South California, Los Angeles an MBA in marketing, and a BS degree in microbiology and biochemistry from Bombay University in India. Suzanne has also mentioned that you have an experience as a practitioner. Can you tell us more about your background and maybe more importantly, your areas of interest? Yes, I started out as a scientist, you know, a lab scientist with a background in uh microbiology and biochemistry and a specialization in genetic engineering. And so I was destined to have a scientific career, but a very different one from the one I currently have. Um, So I early... uh, Right after my uh, bachelor's degree, I switched to business and did my MBA and then my, I worked for a while and then my PhD. And now I am very happily a professor. I love the academic life. Uh, I love all aspects of it, whether it's research or teaching. More specifically, as a researcher, my my research kind of straddles two main domains, and you might think about them as looking at two sides of the pleasure coin. On one hand, I look at the things that we need to do to resist pleasure. 
So how do we how do we um, say no? How do we uh, manage temptation? How do we achieve our goals? And the, on the other hand, uh, and, and you, as someone from France, know, knows quite a lot about this, about how to actually indulge in pleasure, to experience pleasure fully. And so um, I, I, in that area of research, I studied design, aesthetics, and luxury. And so my, my work uh, straddles both those two areas, and I see a lot of overlaps between those two areas and how they complement each other. Thanks. Uh, thanks a lot. Uh, very uh, clear and very uh, interesting. Could you share with us any mentors uh, that had a particularly strong influence on you? Uh, do you have any researcher or other people, maybe, uh, who have played an influential role in your professional career? Yes, over over the over the last twenty years, I have met a whole bunch of very very incredible, productive, and more importantly, really nice people in our field. Uh, and I'm constantly, you know, looking at how they do things and what they do, uh, and and how to do things better. So a few people I'd like to mention are my advisors. Um, my advisors have been, you know, r with me right from the beginning and till today, whenever anything happens, the first thing I do is kind of make sure to tell my family and to tell my advisors. Um, and I keep very, very close to them, Debbie McInnes and C.W. Park. And of course, there are people I've met throughout the years. One of them is our common friend, Dilip Soman, who is not only an advisor, but also a good friend and colleague. And, and as a researcher, you know, you work with all sorts of people and each person you interact with enhances your life in a very important and unique way. And so I think I've been very lucky to, to have that very positive influence from our field. Wonderful. So Vanessa, as I mentioned earlier, your recent book, The Power of Saying No, was just published in June 2023, a few months ago. Before we discuss the content of it, can you tell us more about the inspiration behind writing it? How did the idea for the book come to you? Yeah, this is a great question. Uh, and, you know, I didn't initially think about writing this book because the work started with research articles that I wrote on how to say no more effectively. And when I wrote the research articles, there was a dearth of systematic scientific research on this question. And so I wrote it out of curiosity and to fill this research gap. It was only after the research got published that I realized that there is a huge need to understand this more fully. People are really struggling with this issue in the real world and want systematic and science-based advice on how to solve this problem of saying no. And that it's after the research papers and after the papers got a whole bunch of media attention, you know, everything from the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Los Angeles Times covered this work when the papers got published. And then I would go to these talks and talk about research and people would say, hey, is there anything more? And I had very little to offer them other than the research articles and the presentation I had just made. And that's when I thought, maybe there's a market for this book. And I love to read. 
And so the idea of writing a book was, it's almost like a dream come true to be able to contribute with a book. And so I'm so excited that, uh, about the book. And it, it really was an idea that developed over time based on a need that I saw in the marketplace. Yeah, that was something I noticed when reading your book was you had wonderful quotes from so many classic authors and philosophers. You could really tell that you are a big reader yourself. So that was really fun to see come through. So before we get into the details, would love to just lead with kind of the key takeaway. What is the main learning that you want our audience to remember after this conversation? I know you mentioned that your goal is for us to nudge ourselves to live a life of passion and purpose. What does saying no have to do with that? So I think saying no is a super skill that we all can learn and develop and become better at. And once we get better at saying no to the things that don't matter, then we get to say yes to the things that do. And when we spend our time doing things that are meaningful to us, that are important, when we prioritize what we care about in this world, we just live more fulfilled and happier lives. And so I think understanding this skill is so important for general well-being and happiness. And so I'm really excited about sharing uh, the techniques and the tools associated with developing this skill. Thanks, Vanessa. Now we have time to go deeper in this. Uh, you start by mentioning that we often say yes when we want to say no. It seems to be very irrational, which is not so surprising for a, a behavioral science practitioner. But why, as human beings, it is so difficult for us to say no even if we don't want to do something, could you tell us more about the role, for example, of belonging, relationship, reputation that you mentioned in your book? Absolutely. This inability to say no is a fundamentally human problem. And this is because we, as human beings, are social creatures and we thrive because of our relationships with others. And at a very fundamental level, we believe, or we have been socialized to believe, that saying no is a negative thing. Saying no is something that goes against what society expects. In the book, I describe it as saying no as a socially dispreferred response, which means we interpret that when people ask us something, they expect us to say yes, otherwise they wouldn't have asked us. And when we say no, we go against that expectation. And so just simply going against the expectation of society is not comfortable for us. And so we struggle with it. In the book, I identify three main reasons why we struggle with saying no and say yes instead. Number one, our concern for our relationships with others. Number two, our concern for reputation. And number three, just the inability and the inexperience with saying no or practicing saying no. And so it makes sense that from a, from a relationship standpoint, we believe that when we say no, we risk damaging our relationship with others. We want to have friends. We want to be included. We want to be part of a social group. And we worry that if we say no, we are damaging that relationship. 
The other thing that we worry about is how people see us, our reputation. Like, will people think poorly of us because we said no? Will they think that we are not competent, not capable, unable to handle the multiple things that come our way? And so there's a huge competency concern that comes up. And we struggle with saying no because we're worried that people will think that we can't handle it. And the third thing is that we've just never practiced saying no. We, you know, if you think about it, you know, toddlers uh, are very good at saying no. They say no to everything because they don't have these societal concerns. And we almost train that out of our kids. We kind of socialize them to be much more cooperative, much more nice, obliging, kind, which is all good stuff, but not necessarily at the cost of your own well-being and purpose. So it is a a starting point, which is a a big challenge and a, a big problem. So now uh, there is not only this kind of psychological factors that you explain very well in the book. There is also a kind of what I call situational factor that you call the spotlight effect. Could you explain how it works and maybe give an example of a spotlight effect? Right. So the spotlight effect is essentially finding yourself in a situation where you're being asked to do something and because of the intense pressure and the intense conflict that you experience, you feel that you are in the center of attention, that there's a spotlight shining on you and you have no choice but to say yes. And so the spotlight effect, uh, I I examine it in in several studies and I show that this feeling of being in the spotlight is exacerbated when other people are around and people are watching you. It's also exacerbated when you've been asked and you haven't, and it comes as a surprise. You haven't gotten a heads up. This is a surprise. And because you're not prepared, you kind of just... The easiest response is to just say yes. And so what we have to realize is that the spotlight effect needs to be managed. We need to kind of recognize that the spotlight effect can happen and it is real. And then we need to have develop these tools that we can put in place to be able to manage the spotlight. Okay, do you have an example of a spotlight effect? Right, so uh, many, many times we might be in a situation at work, for example, where someone asks us something and we really want to say, no, we don't want to do it. And yet, because there's that social pressure, you feel the need to conform. So let's imagine that, you know, so there's, there's a retirement party that needs to be organized and you did You organize a retirement party really nicely for the last person who retired. You seem to be the natural go-to person to organize this retirement party as well. But your job in the organization is not to organize every retirement party because there's a trade-off, right? If you organize retirement parties, you're probably not going to be working on something that's more important for your job. And so the idea that you would be asked to take something on that you don't want to And then you take it on because you just feel in the spotlight, everybody's expecting it of you, everybody wants you to do it. 
And so one of the things that kind of the metaphors that I bring up in the book is something I call the stadium proposal moments. Uh, and, and I liken this experience to being proposed to at a stadium. So, you know, like there's this, there's this notion of romance that when, that, you know, you're at a stadium and then this boy asks a girl to marry him and they're, they are featured on the jumbotron and the whole stadium is cheering. And it's a super beautiful and romantic idea if the girl wants to say yes. But what if the girl wanted to say no or is not ready? Is that a good, is that a good position to be in? Can she say no even if the whole stadium is watching? And so what I talk about in the book is this idea that, you know, we experience these mini stadium proposal moments in our lives on a regular basis. And so understanding them, understanding the psychology behind them and labeling them helps us manage them and navigate them more efficiently and realize that this is just a moment that will pass. And so we need to be able to develop the skills to be able to still say no if these things are not right for us. Yeah, very, uh, very clear. So we can agree that saying no seems to be very challenging, but why, from your perspective, it is such a big problem to say yes when we want to say no? We uh, are kind people, we can say yes and that's it. Right, so there are those three factors we just talked about that cause us to say yes when we want to say no. But each of us differ in our vulnerability to each of these factors. And so one of the things that I've done in the book is kind of develop a set of scales so that you can assess for yourself which is your, so to speak, Achilles heel. You know, is it your concern for relationships or is it your concern for reputation? Or is it just simply that you don't have the language? Developing that understanding of where you need to work helps you become better at identifying why you're more likely to say yes when you want to say no. So what I find in the research, and I've done a study with around 2,000 participants from North America, and I find that in general, women struggle with all of these issues more than men do. Women are also more likely to report to be people pleasers and concern for relationships, which somewhat makes sense. Um, if men struggle with saying no, it's largely because they are concerned for their reputation or they simply don't know how to say no. And so this is where the book comes in, because the book is really about not only developing an understanding of what the problems are and what the psychological issues are with saying yes when you want to say no, but also giving you a set of very concrete tools that help you to be able to navigate these difficult situations and the language and the competencies you need to develop to be able to say a more effective no. So Vanessa, I certainly understand the gender-related challenges that can come with saying no, especially for women. Can you tell us a little bit more about why no is a gendered issue? 
Yeah, no is definitely a gendered issue. Uh, several research studies have shown that uh, women are much more likely to say yes to a workplace request. Uh, women are also more likely to be asked to take on tasks that nobody in the organization wants to do. So there's research that comes out of Carnegie Mellon, uh, led by Linda Babcock, where she finds where she identifies a certain set of tasks which are called non-promotable tasks. So these are tasks uh, or work that is needs to be done in an organization that is not part of your job. They, they are tasks which could be characterized as office housework, things that need to get done, but it's not anybody's job responsibility to do them. So, for example, things like organizing retirement parties, organizing company retreats or picnics, um, you know, cleaning out the break room refrigerator, taking notes, writing reports, bringing the coffee and donuts. These are all the tasks that need to be done. What she finds is that women are disproportionately more likely to be asked to take on these tasks but also more likely to say yes to these tasks compared to men. And so women in many cases, they already have this need to please for, and, and maintain good relationships, but they're also asked and you know, they're tapped into quite a bit to keep up all these tasks. And so in many ways, uh, we, as if you, if you are a woman leader, uh, investing in this skill is definitely something that will help you a lot. The other thing that happens when you learn to say no is that there's a constellation of other things, other skills, other feelings that go along with the ability to say no that can be quite beneficial. When you start saying no to things, you get to be able to be much more prioritized and focused. Then you can be more confident. Your ability to negotiate for yourself, to advocate for yourself becomes enhanced. And so there's this whole constellation of skills and comp constellation of, um, how should I put it, um, competencies that are good for your own professional and personal advancement that can be enhanced once you start developing with th th this particular set of skills. Well, and to that point, really at the heart of your book is the concept of empowered refusal. Can you explain to our listeners what you mean by that phrase? Yes. So the research that I, that I did uh, was to introduce this concept of empowered refusal. So empowered refusal is a way of saying no that makes the no effective. Empowered refusal is empowered because it stems from one's identity. It gives voice to one's values, priorities, preferences, and beliefs. And because it stems from your identity and indicates your stance on a matter, you come across with greater conviction and determination. And hence, you come across as much more persuasive in your refusal and are less likely to get pushback. And so this whole, it starts with looking inwards and understanding you know, what, are, what do I care about? Where do I stand on this matter? Why do I want to say no? And phrasing your no or framing your no in a way that reflects that. In many ways, empowered refusal is not a rejection of the other person. 
It is about giving voice to your own values. And once we kind of embrace the idea of empowered refusal, we become better at it because we don't get that pushback. And we realize that it's really about prioritizing ourselves, about giving voice to who we are and what we care about. So once you've done that first step of looking inward and understanding what is important to you, How can someone express their empowered refusal? I know you mentioned in your book that words can be important and that there are three facets that work together to make it now effective, which are authenticity, clearness, and concreteness of communication. Where does one go from there? Right. So uh, an empowered refusal has to be a no that is very clear. It has to reflect your identity. It has to really give the listener a reason that's based on who you are, what you stand for, what you believe, and needs to convey that in an effective and and clear manner. Very often, uh, people, because we've never been taught how to say no, you might be in an interaction with someone and they're trying to say no to you, but at the end of the interaction. It is such a wishy-washy no. You have no idea whether they have said yes, they have said no, where they stand on this matter. And so empowered refusal really hinges on this idea of clarity, concreteness, and authenticity. Specifically in my book and in my research, I talk about the importance of language. So a simple turn of phrase can make a huge difference. So in the research, I basically studied and contrasted saying no by saying, I'm sorry, I can't, versus saying, I don't. Now, most often when we um, get a request that comes our way, we often search for external reasons as to why we can't take that on. And we say, I'm really sorry, I can't because I'm traveling. Or I'm really sorry, I can't because I don't have the time. But all of these are making an external attribution for why you are saying no. When we shift that from making that external attribution from I can't, and we reframe our refusal to saying I don't, I don't is a much more stable stance. It implicates the identity. And because it implicates the identity, we come across as much more determined, full of conviction, and we don't get pushback because people don't push back against who you are and what you stand for. Gotcha. So for the folks you mentioned earlier, perhaps the people pleaser group who really might need a little more convincing that no can be a good thing. What would you say to those people who are worried that this empowered refusal might actually damage their reputation relationships? Yeah, so empowered refusal, and I have shown this in the research, does not damage the reputation and, and, and relationships. In fact, if we think about it, and people who are good at saying no, we don't think poorly of them at all. In fact, we think, wow, I wish we could be like them because they seem to be so sure of what they want. They seem to be very clear. They have clarity of purpose. They have conviction and they have a, they have a driving force and a focus in what they commit to. I think that one of the things that uh, we recognize is that everything is a trade-off. When we say yes to something, we are saying no to something else. And so recognizing that trade-off and realizing that 
you know, when we say yes to things that we really don't want to take on, we are not doing ourselves any favors. We are taking time doing things that are not meaningful to us. And very often we've become really resentful towards the other person. And so I very often recommend a gut check. If you're feeling grumpy and resentful because you've done something or doing something, that's an indication that you should not be doing it. And so often we are in this situation where we land up doing stuff and saying, oh, I wish I wasn't doing this. I wish I was doing something else. And that's when we know this is not aligned and recognizing that and learning from it. So one of the concepts I bring into the book is uh, the psychological immune system, which is a concept I'm fascinated by because we as human beings have this lovely coping mechanism in place, right? So when bad things happen to us, when we are feeling grumpy, when we are doing something we don't want to do, we search for silver linings. We cope with those things. We tend not to learn from things. Whereas I say, well, we need to, you know, manage that process and recognize, I hate this, I'm feeling grumpy, I'm feeling resentful towards the asker, I should not do this again. And so kind of recognizing that our tendency as human beings is to cope with things for the psychological immune system to kick in and not learn. And that's where you find people doing the same thing again and again. I was just going to ask before I hand back to Eric, could you say a little bit more about why the psychological immune system leads us to not learning from our mistakes. So there's not much research on the psychological immune system per se, but, you know, we as human beings are, are designed to cope, to become resilient and to become and, and to survive. And so we have these intricate coping mechanisms in place and the psychological immune system is kind of the conglomeration of all of these mechanisms where we are trying to bounce back. We are trying to get back to feeling normal. And so we, in the short term, we override. So it's a very short term system, right? We are trying to get back to normal. We're not thinking long term, like in the long term, we want to learn from these mistakes, but in the short term, we want to feel better. And so the whole system is designed to feel better, to bounce back in the short term, not necessarily taking the long view. Vanessa, now I think we understand that saying no when we want to say no is critical. We also now understand that we can say no in a way which is good for us and also persuasive to others with this concept of uh, empowered refusal. But there is a, still a big question, which is about the competencies that we need to develop to master what you call the art, A-R-T, of empowered refusal, a kind of acronym for awareness, rules, not decision, and totally of self. So I would like to hear about you, about these three competencies. First, this first competency, which is about awareness. You mentioned that we need to become familiar with our goals, desires, and ambition through kind of introspection. Mm -hmm. Right. So 
The first competency is awareness because we can only look inwards and develop an empowered refusal response if we know what our values, priorities, preferences, and beliefs are. We're really spending time thinking about what your purpose is, what you care about, what good you want to do in the world? What positive difference do you want to create on a daily basis? This kind of daily reflection is something that a lot of us do not necessarily engage in. And so really knowing ourselves and developing that self-awareness. And self-awareness is not only knowing about ourselves, but knowing about how we operate in the world. So self-awareness has two main components. There's internal self-awareness and there's external self-awareness. And so internal self-awareness is really knowledge about yourself, how you like to operate. What are your optimal ways of operating in the world? If you were to design the world, how would it be You know, for yourself? And then external self-awareness is how other people see you, understanding how you need to operate in the world. So social norms, for example. One of the things I find when I speak about the book to international audiences is that a lot of uh, in a lot of uh, there are lots of cross-cultural differences in how things are viewed all around the world the social norms so for example you know uh, a lot of my research is conducted actually all of my research is conducted in north america but there is an opportunity to look at you know re- the concern for relationships reputation and the inability to say no in a cross-cultural context and there might be differences uh, and i hypothesize that in fact there are differences in collectivist cultures, etc. And so just that basic understanding of yourself and your place in the world is so important uh, to develop as a competency uh, for, for empowered refusal. So there is a, a second uh, one, which is, I think, absolutely uh, uh, critical. And you call it making rules, not decision. Uh, with uh, an objective to define what you call personal policies, which act both as a compass, a magnet, and a bridge. Can you explain this? Yes. So I've introduced the idea of personal policies into the book. uh, And the competency related to that is the importance of developing rules, not decisions. So let's define personal policies. Personal policies are simply rules that we set up for ourselves that guide and shape our actions and decisions. And so we set up personal policies to reflect our values, our priorities, our preferences and beliefs. So we need, with that deepened self-awareness, we then need to set us up for success. We need to set up rules that shape our behaviors and actions, that stem and give voice to those values and priorities and are based on our self-awareness. And so personal policies, I like to think about them as kind of guideposts, things that help us or nudge us in the direction that we desire to go. And and, uh, I develop a typology of personal policies in the book and a framework that helps people and helps guide people about how to set up a personal policy. 
I think it's at this point is quite important because there seems to be some conceptual confusion about personal policies and boundaries. A lot of people think about this as boundaries. And I think about personal policies as slightly different from boundaries because boundaries are a reaction to other people. We set up a boundary to protect ourselves from other things to other people. Whereas personal policies are inherently internally driven. So it's about giving voice to who you are as opposed to a boundary, which is about protecting yourself from others, which is much more externally driven. So it's a subtle difference, but I think makes a big difference big difference when you're actually implementing uh, the personal policy versus the boundary. Mm -hmm. We will come back later in a minute with uh, Suzanne on this, but I would like to hear from you about the third competency, uh, which you call bringing your whole self to your unpowered refusal. What do you mean by whole self and why is it so important? Right, so the, the T in art stands for totality of self. And totality of self is about really bringing your whole self to the refusal. A refusal is essentially an act of communication. And an act of communication has two main components. There's the words that we use and the non-verbals that accompany those words. And very often we think about saying no as just the words about saying no. But the reality is that saying no needs to be a whole body experience. You need to say the words in an empowered manner, but you also need to use empowered body language to accompany the words that you use. So you need to use an empowered stance that non-verbally communicate that you are full of determination and conviction to accompany your words. The other really useful way of uh, the useful way in which we can use nonverbals is to secure our relationship with the asker. So even though we might say no, our body language can help communicate that our re refusal is not a rejection of the other person. You know, leaning forward, smiling, looking at someone in the eyes, uh, leaning forward and tapping them on the shoulder. These are ways in which we secure relationships in a nonverbal sort of way. So even if you are saying no to somebody else, the nonverbals can assure the other person that the no is not a rejection of them. It is simply a reflection of who you are. And so the non mastering the non-verbals to accompany the, the refusal, the empowered refusal is really something that we need to invest in as the third competency. Vanessa, could you give us a few more examples of common mistakes that you see people making with their non-verbals, either with their body and or their voice itself as a tool? Right. So um, one of the things that happens quite often is that our nonverbals kind of convey our true feelings, even though uh, words might say something, our nonverbals can signal something else. And so being cognizant that we need to have verbals and nonverbals that are in sync with each other. So let's imagine someone asks, can I, can I please borrow your lawnmower, Suzanne? You might say yes, 
but your body might say why is my neighbor constantly asking me for stuff why can't they just leave me alone on a work day you know they and you can pick up on the non verbals even and so you know you might you might be in an interaction with someone where it seemed completely pleasant from a verbal standpoint but you leave with this kind of sense that eh, there's something off and it's largely the non verbals that are speaking and so being cognizant of the fact that our verbals and non verbals need to kind of cohere and be in sync is something we need to practice The other thing that happens is that when we are afraid or scared or anxious our non-verbals leak power. So even though we might come across and and our verbals might speak with confidence, our non-verbals might kind of say, "Well, you're saying the I don't, you're talking in an empowered language, but your non-verbals are telling me that I can convince you to do what I want." And so managing that and and recognizing that you know our nonverbals can protect us from uh from from being ineffective in our communication and learning to leverage our nonverbals to become more effective is super important so earlier you alluded to the fact that you put forward a framework for how to establish a really strong and efficient personal policy and this is the dream framework which stands for diagnose, reflect, establish, act and monitor. So I think this was a really helpful framework for our audience to understand all the different steps that we need to take. Could you briefly explain each of these steps for them? Right. So, uh, the personal policy as we just discussed is simply a set of rules that we set up for ourselves that guide our actions and decisions. So in order to start developing these personal policies, we need a, a a framework to be able to set these up well. So the first uh stage of the dream framework is to diagnose and to identify the pain point, identify the problem that we wish to solve, identify what is it that's troubling us that we need to resolve in this particular kind of domain. then we need to spend a lot of time reflecting doing that work and tapping into our own internal self awareness to think through what is it that i need to happen what is the outcome that i would like what would be the ideal world according to me and once you've developed done the the diagnosis and the reflection then you need to carefully establish the personal policy and to establish the personal policy you need to ask yourself two main questions one who is this personal policy for is the target of the personal policy me or is the target of the personal policy someone else so i divide these two into announcements versus self talk personal policies are that are announcements are personal policies that we need to communicate to others we need to convey to other people so that they know where we stand on these matters so for example if you want your work team not to call you between 6 and 8 in the evening because it is uh, because it's family time that's an announcement you need to communicate hey please don't call me between 6 and 8 because 6 and 8 is earmarked for family 
You can call me before six and maybe we can schedule some time after eight. But six to eight is protected time. That's an announcement. People are not going to know that that is your preference unless you communicate it. And announcements, and this is a subtle difference, but announcements essentially are personal policies that we need to set up when we are on a particular path and we know where we need to go, but others are more likely to derail us. So we need to tell other people, hey, don't derail me because I'm on this path. Self-talk, on the other hand, is where we get in our own way. The things that we say to ourselves. And so self-talk are personal policies that we need to develop to to, to enhance our own self-discipline, our own self-focus. So let's say that, you know, you want to manage how much time you spend on social media and you say, you know, I'm... I'm only going to do social media, get on LinkedIn every afternoon from four to five. The rest of the time, I do not go to LinkedIn. Now that is self-talk. That's not something you need to announce to the world. That's a a rule you've set up for yourself. And so you set up self-talk rules largely uh, to keep yourself on track. When you are likely to be derailed, you might have to need, you might need a personal policy to keep yourself on track. And so that's how you think about establishing the personal policy. Who, so there are two main aspects, the target, which is whether it's an announcement or the self-talk, and then the form in which the personal policy takes. So is, should it be a decision rule? Should it be a precept or a mantra that you repeat to yourself? Should it be a ritual, something that you do every day that you can either tell other people about or that you have to keep for yourself? And so it's a it's a very nuanced kind of framework and it walks people through what are the best ways in which to achieve this goal of empowered refusal? What systems do I need to put in place to do that? And so once you've established the, cell, the the personal policy, we need to act on it. And this is really important because people think that, hey, I got a personal policy magically. We are, it's going to be perfect and I'm just going to be able to do these things. It's hard work to keep stuff up. And so we have to recognize that, you know, it takes a lot of effort and accountability to ourselves to keep at the things that we say we want to do. So establishing it, then we need to act. And I think really importantly, we also need to monitor whether they are still working for us. Are they still serving the purpose? And so updating our personal policies when they need to be updated. I mean, it's quite often that, you know, things change in life and our roles change and our personal policies that worked for us and one area do not work for us anymore. This happened quite a bit during the pandemic. A lot of people who had worked with me on personal policies would suddenly say, I I had a personal policy that no longer works for me. What happens? Like I used to listen to a podcast on my way to work, but I'm not going to work anymore. Now what do I do? And so updating your personal policies to achieve that same goal, but perhaps through another means because the situation has changed. So you need to constantly be monitoring and asking, is this still working for me? Are the situation, uh, is the situation different? Should I need, do I need to change my set of personal policies. I tried to summarize a very complex framework very quickly. I hope I was effective in doing so. 
very effective, actually, but I would still encourage our listeners to read the full book to get the full experience. But uh, my last question before I hand over to Eric to wrap up is off of something that you just alluded to in the ACT step. Um, you know, as behavioral science practitioners, we know that there is a huge gap between intent and behavior, right? Even if you set the policy, it doesn't mean you'll actually do it. So what's your advice to resisting temptation? You talk about compassionate self-control, self-talk, other techniques on the two sides of that pleasure coin you talked about at the beginning. What would your recommendation be? So that, that's a great question and actually the topic of my second book. So I'm quite excited about uh-huh, uh, a great one to end on. <laughs> yes. So there are definitely uh, principles associated with what works for resisting temptation in the long run. And so I like to call this idea compassionate self-control because what I've found in my own research is that when we impose stuff on ourselves that is not sustainable on the long run, it inevitably fails. And so we need to kind of set up different systems that actually work for us. And the things that work for us tend to be things that are positive, and they have positive outcomes, things that are grounded in our identity because it gives voice to who we are and we are most comfortable being ourselves. And so when we can continue to do things that are aligned with who we are, we're more likely to pursue those things. Also things that are, are that that create a positive benefit in the world so that we can sustain them. Each instance is positive feedback so that we do this, we feel good, we are more likely to do it again, right? Um, and, and so those things that are self-sustaining are the things that actually give you that immediate positive feedback so that the next time becomes easier to do. And so I've developed a framework, which I will reveal in the, my next book uh, on that's actually an acronym that will help us craft these personal policies, not only in the domain of empowered refusal, but in life in general. Vanessa, it perfectly leads to uh, my uh, next and last uh, question. Maybe not only a question, but more a comment. And I would like to have a a reaction from you about uh, this comment. In fact, I think your book for sure is about uh, the power of saying no, but I think it goes beyond this. I think it's also a book about how to have a meaningful and happy life by contributing to what you call a new harmony. What do you think? I sincerely hope so. That's the reason I wrote the book, to be more helpful, to be a positive uh, force in people's lives. It starts with something very small, like learning how to say no, but I hope it has bigger ramifications for people's lives. It is what we have understood with uh, Suzanne, and we recommend very strongly to our audience to read the book to have this uh, full understanding. So thanks a lot. Uh, It was a wonderful, inspiring uh, conversation. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. Yes, this was fantastic. Vanessa, is there anything you would like to leave our readers with, perhaps uh, where they can find more about you and your work? Absolutely. So... um, I, my website is vanessapatrick.net. I'm on Twitter, vpatrick23. I'm on Instagram, vanpat23. Uh, and I obviously have a university website, 
uh, on, on the Bauer College of Business page. I look forward to connecting with uh, our listeners. Wonderful. Thank you so much. So uh, thanks a lot, Vanessa. Be Good, a podcast by the BVA Nudge Unit.